Hello, I'm Hunt Etheridge. I'm an award-winning dating and relationship expert, TV personality, coach, matchmaker, writer, entrepreneur, husband, father, bon vivant, and all-around swell guy. I've been in the love industry for over 15 years and have been following all the ups and downs of today's dating dilemmas. I teach my clients that dating is a mix of biology, psychology, sociology, and anthropology. To understand our motivations, the motivations of the person sitting across from you, and the motivations of society at large, we have to delve into different aspects of it at different times to understand the machinations behind it so we can maximize our benefits. To keep myself updated, I'm constantly reading studies on all sorts of topics that can help me better understand my clients and what's going on out there. I've pulled together some of the most brilliant minds from across different fields to share what the data is telling us and how that can impact each and every one of our lives. This is Hunt for Relationship Science. Hello, and today I am excited to speak with Dr. Jeffrey Hall. I love using LinkedIn for what I think the main reason is. So I will read these awesome articles across the, the net and then immediately go to LinkedIn and immediately find the authors of it. I like your articles. It's really cool. Do you ever be up for a conversation? And you honestly, you would really be surprised at how many people are open to just say, hi, hello. I really enjoyed what you did. And I think that people would, would could could really reach out to people that have made effects on them and have conversations and, and both help their own network and, and things they do at work as well, too. Because, I mean, it's been, what, a week since I contacted you or read your article, and, and here we are. So uh, please uh, introduce yourself and, and tell everybody what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is uh, Jeff Hall. I'm a professor of communication studies at the University of Kansas, and my research looks at the intersection between online and offline worlds, uh, particularly around friendship and meaningful relationships, and how do we basically maintain our relationships and continue to uh, prioritize face-to-face -face interaction and communication. Very timely. Um, have you always been in the communication, like, did you major in communication? Have you always been in the communication space or did you kind of like get there through other ways or what? Yeah. Um, I was an undergraduate major in literature and I loved it. And I kind of discovered, uh, after being undecided for a while that I want to be a professor because it seemed like the perfect combination of teaching and being able to do this thing I just discovered you can do, which was research. I had a professor in literature say, that's a terrible job. Don't do that. <laughs> and then I had a professor in communication say, hey, this is a new and growing field. You should think about that. So I went and got a master's degree in communication. And then I worked for a couple of years for the federal government doing program evaluation. And then I went back to get my PhD at the Southern Cal uh, at USC. And then kind of that rest is history. I've been a professor at KU for 15 years. Program evaluation is, is a good foundational thing to have, especially going into this. It's some, somewhat similar to what my uh, wife does as well, too. So I'm I'm a data guy. So being forewarned is forearmed. Like the more you know, the easier it is for you to then, what do I do with this information? How do I maximize my benefits, minimize my losses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how many, it, it, approximately at this point, how many studies have, do you think you've authored or co-authored? Uh, 80? Or something 80? like that. It's nice. that's a bit. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I've, my early iteration of my career, I was a lot more focused on the kind of things that I know that you're interested in. So I, uh, I wrote a book called The Five Flirting Styles. Hmm. I got to be on the Steve Harvey show, and that was lots of fun. Nice. Uh, I worked with eHarmony on a project on strategic misrepresentation and online dating in 2010. Um, the flirting style stuff took me down pathways of thinking about flirting and how to communicate that and how to be effective. Um, I really took an approach that says there's no such thing as a good flirt or a bad flirt, but we're learning about the process that we communicate attraction, and that process is different for everyone, um, but knowable through the flirting styles. And 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 practicable. And practicable. Um, and then I kind of took a turn in the middle part of my career where I started studying media more. I did work on self-presentation on Facebook. I looked at basically can you judge people's personality through their online you know, messages uh, Facebook page, uh, other things like that. Um, I did some more work based on texting early on. I did one of the very first studies that looked at texting and friendships. And then after that, I kind of really hammered down on this study area that I've been really very, very interested in for the last about five to eight years, 
which is trying to understand how do we prioritize our lives and our relationships towards connecting with one another. Um, you know, I've come to the conclusion in my own life that the most meaningful thing we can do with our time is to be in relation to each other. So I try to figure out why we don't. I try to figure out what are those barriers? Why don't we have those priorities? I also try to understand how we have this kind of complicated relationship with wanting to be connected, but not taking the actions to find mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. I try to understand why it would be that some ways of communicating like face-to-face -face, are more valuable and connecting than our online modalities. So if, you know, I kind of the long and the short of it is that when I really started thinking about the kind of lineage of my own process, uh, flirting is a lot like a form of connection that's also experienced in everyday life. How do you show interest? How do you show attraction? How do you say you care about somebody? How do you show I want to develop this relationship? How do you find a commonality? How do you find a, uh, develop a rapport on that? You got it. And so, you know, if you take the kind of the sometimes explicit sexual part of that and take it out, basically, I've always been studying the process of connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like even within that specific uh, instance, I, I, I take flirting and I take hitting on flirting. I can do with a grandmother I'm like, oh, granny, if you were just, you know, 10 years younger, you'd have to worry about me or you flirt with your guy friends, you know, just joking around like, oh, man, look at that shirt on you. Don't you look cute? Because there's nothing necessarily there's no intent behind it. Right. When the intent is added to it, I think that's what we start calling like hitting on. And then, you know, th that overt like, hey. But I, I, I even teach and I have spoken in corporate sessions as well, too, how to develop relationships with your customers, things like that as well, too. And in my, in my teaching, I coach that like it's the same steps as sales. Find out who this person is, what makes them tick, what's their pain point, what's their pleasure point, alleviate their pain point, push their pleasure point, find out the commonalities, develop a rapport. And then whether you ask for a date or whether you ask for a sale... You know, basically what the skill set that has gotten you there is the same. And in fact, I've had lots of people come up to me after working with me and tell me that how much working with me improved their professional life. Hmm. Because, again, it, most of this is just how to be a better human. How do we connect better? How do we showcase who we are better? How do we demonstrate our own value better? Uh, and then, you know, the details happens to be within the dating. So I want to go back to one of the first things that you said. And one of the things, too, is that one of the things that you first started to get into was texting. Mm -hmm. I even remember the phrase texting. One of my friends would yell at me every time. He's like, you didn't text it. You sent a text. I'm like, it's not a word now. It will be. I know how words work. Just trust me on That's this funny. one. We're texting and texted. Um, but I like the fact that this particular um, study and other studies show that basically texting frequency was negative, uh, negatively associated with life satisfaction. Yeah. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other things to control for within that. But I notice sometimes within relationships that the women tell me, how do I get the guy to text more? Hmm. You know, and the you know, to this point, kind of the answer is no. Um, let me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I might take a different a different take than that. I, I mean, there's a lot of complicated factors going on in the process of getting to know somebody that um may or may not apply to the kind of thing that I study when it comes to like existing close relationships. So I try to, st one of the things that I find is that in the world of research on media, uh, so social media, texting, uh, computer media communication, a lot of times they're so fascinated with the, with the technology that they don't really think about the other person on the other side of, of, the, of the text message. So, you know, there were huge studies that do things like, uh, you know, scrape big data from Twitter or uh, from Facebook. Um, and what they do is that they scrape this data and then they make conclusions about people based upon basically empty just text. And what's odd to me about all of those things is, is that the what you say and how you say it is so much embedded in the relationship you have with another 7 person. percent of all information is what the text and everything else is tonality right. and body so, language. So yeah, like and... that, all, yeah, right. So in my nonverbal communication class, one of the things we talked about a lot is the concept that there's so much more information coming through in your nonverbal communication. Um, but the relationship implicit to that is really tricky because just the frequency of texting alone in the case that you're talking about, um, it's not going to necessarily make the relationship any better because early on, there's so many factors that basically say why people wouldn't text, why they would play hard to get, why they might be aloof, why they might play the field, why they might not want to respond right away. I mean, the number mm -hmm. of countervailing messages that young people yep. get about okay. don't communicate 
Don't respond fast. Don't show you're don't, too excited. Don't, don't show, show you're too excited. Busy. Don't, you know. It's counterindicated by all the stuff that comes along with actually relationship development. But yes. I understand why people do it. And again, that's part of these processes that I find so fascinating is that the, the breaks that we put on developing the relationships that we have, not just romantic relationships, but all relationships, those well, breaks, well. those breaks stop us from finding more meaningful connection, but we long for that connection. We want it. But we mm -hmm. also don't want to stop having your breaks available, right? <laughs> I still don't want to be too authentic. I, I still don't want to be too honest. I still don't want to be too desperate because I'm afraid people are going to judge me. So I'm very aware of all of those processes. And one of the things about texting that I think is relevant in the study that I conducted, I think is relevant perhaps for what you're trying to get at, is that texting alone is not an indicator of where you're at and uh, your own well-being and not a good indicator of where you're at in your relationship well-being. Yes, yes. And so the, the bigger picture here is what you're saying when you say, I want to communicate more with my partner right. or my, my prospective partner. That's really what you're saying. I want more. Yeah. Yes. Not, not you're saying texting is going to make it better because it won't. Or it's, right? or it's like I am I have an, uh, a, an, you know, an attachment anxiety uh, sure. and I need this thing. And once you can start getting at the cores of it, you can. But, yeah, that's how it manifests itself a bit. Well, all needs ma and my the way I approach these things is all needs manifest themselves in various behaviors, but some behaviors are a better fit to the need than others, and that's what the you know the research study that I mentioned in the Wall Street Journal article, why you contacted me and reached out through LinkedIn. It's all about the concept of, right, how do we understand that process of wanting to connect, and what do we do about it? And oh, that's yeah. where this all kind of starts with me is this kind of broader understanding that. Everybody wants to connect, mm -hmm. but how they go about doing it may or may not actually get those needs met. Absolutely. So the name of the study that uh, caught my attention was which mediated social interactions satisfy the need to belong? You know, and, you know, there have been so many studies done and, and, and you know, the level of connection, like, for instance, people weren't connected to their grandmas sure. before Facebook, you know, but now they are. But does that what what level of connection this does that bring satisfaction you know or or not um so let's start with at the beginning like just let's talk about humans why <laughs> good place to start why is the need to belong so fundamental and associated with well-being yeah so the argument that i go from says that uh, people had an advantage to being connected to one another one another and this advantage in evolutionary times made us so that having enduring relationships that you could count on in times of stress meant that you were more likely to do the, the most important things in an evolutionary framework, survive, parent, procreate. And so the idea here is if you look at like our primate relatives and the number of hours that chimpanzees, for example, spend grooming each other, mm -hmm. stroking each other's fur and picking nits and and, you know, they'll fall asleep doing it. And it's just the most relaxing thing. And they spend most of their time when they're not looking for, for food, basically just grooming each other and showing that sense of connection. Also, incidentally, uh, chimps are one of the few animals in the world that we know also have friends. Like we can actually say that there is such a thing as friendship amongst chimpanzees through dolphins, elephants, other very, very social and uh, social mammals. So the concept here is that you need to have those relationships so your body creates a need in the same way that your body creates a need for thirst. Thirst is a signal that you need water. You know, hunger is a signal you need food. Loneliness is a signal that you need people. Mm -hmm. And that loneliness is interpreted by people in a, as a aversive state, a longing, a hurt. You know, I'm a huge fan of music. You can think about how many songs are dedicated to the longing. Like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> I need oh, yeah. somebody. I need someone. I need this person. Or I miss that person or that person left me and I'm crushed. All of those things can be understood from kind of a, a framework that says that we are fundamentally motivated to do something about our need to connect through the experience of longing, through the experience of wanting, and that is manifested in loneliness. Now, one key, key, key thing to talk about, which I think is really complicated, partly because we have bad words and not bad words. Yep. We don't have enough words in English to describe this. When I talk about loneliness in this paper, and in general, I'm talking about the experience of longing. I'm not talking about chronic loneliness. And chronic mm -hmm. loneliness happens to individuals when they get to a state in which that they're experiencing so much disconnection in their lives that they stop looking for help, mm -hmm. that they become disassociated from their friends and family. They begin to, um, I mean, a lot of negative outcomes, including premature death, suicide, et cetera. Oh, yeah. I'm not talking about that. 
right? When, when, and, and chronic loneliness is treatable. It's important to tend to. It's something that we should all be concerned about in a sense of mental well-being. But what I'm talking about is instead that kind of day-to-day sense of, do I want to be around people or do I want to be alone? Do I want to mm-hmm. talk to somebody or do I want to pull within? And what I think about when I think of all of these things is that to cope with that need, I can do a lot of things, uh, but not all of them are equally healthy for me. Just like I can cope with my need to eat by eating a lot of things, but not all the things I eat are good for me. Yeah, and and I've noticed like, and I'm just looking at some of the things for this, the time on Facebook, um, it did not, the more time on Facebook did not increase Didn't matter. more connection. Nope. Um, and could uh, increase feelings of disconnection. Could, indeed. Would, in my brain, that basically means because they're just sort of withdrawing from the world, so to speak, and they're spending more time. It's not nourishing. On this. Yeah, I mean, it's not nourishing for the things that it's meant to nourish. I mean, one way to think about it is it's really common when people feel lonely to watch television, Um, really common. And it's been true before the Internet that that was a response, right? So this is something that entertainment media has an ability to make us feel as if we're not alone, which is really nice, right? Even back in the day. They used to be called the stories. Yeah, right. And, And, you know, you can even argue that all media print media, stories, novellas, whatever. Whatever the time period is, media has the potential to make people feel, to feel as if they're coping with their loneliness. Mm-hmm. And when people used to listen to the radio, same thing. I'm, I'm coping with a feeling of disconnection. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't pay off. So what happens is, is that it's, an, it's a distraction that initially feels as if we're doing something, distracts us temporarily from the feeling of loneliness in order to make it through that time, but we come out of it no more connected than we started. And so when we think about social media, I tend to think of social media more as an entertainment media than mm-hmm. I do as a social. And what's weird is, is I think the word social media has become more corrupted over time, especially as entertainment and corporate media have occupied those spaces more successfully over time. Mm-hmm. So as a consequence, I'm not terribly surprised that none of these things have much of an impact because in some sense, that's not what they're built for. They're built for bringing your eyeballs to a consumer or to an advertiser space. And that's what all social media exists to do. But a phone call doesn't. And in my study, when I take the time to make a phone call to a friend, and when people in the three different studies I did with this one that you're talking about, when people took the time to call somebody, it mattered. They felt less lonely. They felt more connected. They felt so much better about the need state that they were in by taking that time. Because fundamentally, human communication, person-to-person communication, that is, has a more powerful effect on satiating our needs than does entertainment media. Aside from, you know, all of our conscious things of it as well, too, it's just so many unconscious things and pheromones and, and vibes and, you know, all the things that we don't even realize that are, are playing into the things as well, right. too. Um, what was I looking for? Uh, one of the studies I had here, going back into what you were talking about, too, I was just talking about this recently. Um, basically, that people appreciate you reaching out more than you think they do. Yep. Yeah, um, I remember that and- study. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, And that yeah, one yeah. was actually done, uh, one of the, actually, colleague, University of Kansas, was one of the authors on that study as well, oh. I believe. Like, yeah. contact, well, I'd love to talk to them, too, <laughs> someone I've talked to. But basically, yes, they appreciated, yeah. people appreciate being reached out more than you think that they will. Right. And what was cool about this study was that they actually contacted the people you're reaching out to, and you asked, well, how did you feel about that? You mm-hmm. know? And they actually found people also who you weren't terribly close to, and say, well, how did you feel about receiving a text? You know, should you feel bad about it? And overwhelmingly, people felt better about it than people estimated. Totally. So, and like, I try to tell them, like, 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 if you received okay. a call from an old friend, you know, if you received a call, it was like, hey, buddy, just thinking about you. How would it make you feel? Like, would right. you would you feel? Why are they bothering me? And most everybody's like, no, I'd be, like, I'd be oh, glad cool. to hear from them again. I'm like, right. okay, so this is what we believe happens when we reach out, but this is how we feel when someone else reach out. So again, there's that dichotomy of what. It's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, well, it's so crazy. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the ways that I try to help my clients well, too, is I say, like, you remember when we, you were out at uh, the last social event and somebody said something slightly socially awkward and they're like, not really. I'm like, do you remember the last time you were at an event and you said something socially awkward? They're like, we can all remember all of them. Right. It's like, okay, this was just a gentle reminder to give yourself some leeway because probably you were the only one that remembers this. And this phrase is a very positive phrase. No one cares. Yeah. You know, it's not supposed to be nihilistic in any sort of a way. It's like you're the only one that's creating a lot of that reality for yourself. Well, and if it's a shame is, is that in this culture, I think that we are at a place where we also have reduced the obligation that we think we have to one another to try. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and also one of the things that, uh, that I've been reading in some of the you know, books and you know, just finished a uh, man out by uh, Yarrow here, which is about men on the sidelines. Like there's no, there's a lack of third place. Mm. There's a lack of, there used to be Alps clubs and rotary clubs and union mm. halls and, and knitting circles and, and dances on the green and all sorts of stuff. And we have very much lost that. So now it's almost like there's, you know, every space we have is devoted to a certain thing, not in a general sort of thing. Um, when the app Clubhouse came out during the pandemic, I, I, I got an, an interview on that one. That was a fun one. I, I spent a lot of time on that. I enjoyed it. Uh, I wrote an article on it um, that got picked up pretty well, too, about how it's changed because it basically created a digital third place. Yeah. And, and who's talking about it now, though? I, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, definitely when it came out, it was right for the pandemic right. when we couldn't when we didn't have other ways of reaching out right. to each other. And it was great for that. Yeah, but now, of course, social, digi social digital audio is sort of everywhere, and, you know, it's not that much of a connection. But I did like that third place because people are finding love on it because you're in a room talking about boats, Yeah. you know, or, or things that weren't related to dating. Because sure. I used to hate throwing singles events because there's just such a weird energy. <laughs> people walk in, and they look around, and they make snap judgments, and then, yeah. you know— it's it's hard to, to, to curate that energy. But if you can get a group of people together for something else, and then you can hopefully like set the stage for chemistry to find people. No, yeah. I can't disagree. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to look at some of the other things that I was looking for as well, too. Um, as you said, too, like face-to-face -face was the only form consistently related to promoting connection and decreasing disconnection. Right. So we knew we... And, we need to force ourselves to get back out there, especially after the pandemic. Um, and in and, and one of my, you know, how to reconnect after COVID articles, I was saying like, everybody wants to do this pretty much. Like a lot of people just don't know how to do it. So if you're the one that does the reaching out or the putting together, most of the time people are going to be really happy that you're doing the work, you're doing the yeah. effort and, and they don't have to as well too. I uh, put together a dad's group because I didn't have a lot of guy friends, as many as I would like. And, you know, as a guy, it's kind of hard to just walk up to a dude and be like, sup, you want to be friends? It's hard, it's hard to do. So created the dad's group. So it was like an entryway. And, you know, one of the last ones we had was like 12 dads. We go to a beer hall, beer garden. So that's that's why I get a good attendance. But sure, uh, sure. we bring our kids. Um, we had 12 dads and like 15 kids running around. I had one dad come up to me and he's like, I haven't had this much fun since college. And it made me a little sad and, and happy and sad, happy that I yeah. could provide this for him, but sad, just this tiny modicum sort of effort. He's like, I didn't know we could do this, like be happy and do the things that you wanted to do again. And especially as men that we don't reach out as much when we have problems, uh, you know, the men's mental health after intimate partner breakups, men struggle much, much more because they don't have the the language uh the the muscle memory or or even just the the people like if you have, like i've seen those uh as a thing like on tiktok like girls asking like when you have a bad day who do you call guys are like you call people like no one not 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 a soul um and it's sad you know because we do we we, we are and i think that a lot of people think that if i don't have a face to face time i'll make up for it using all of this social media time as well. And obviously studies are showing that it does not fill that hole, right. you know, that longing hole for it. Um, so like, but so now you have a lot of people that don't work in offices anymore, yep. you know, and we used to have a lot and it's a, you know, it's great. It's a great leap forward for workers and humans but it is, it can be very taxing when it comes to trying to make relationships now because you have to overcompensate for this lack and go out. And people usually are not good at pushing themselves to do anything, um, <laughs> let alone this. Um, and also, I've found that, you know, humans are more pain avoidant than pleasure seeking. Uh, this is an evolutionary benefit to keep us alive, but... Like, for instance, when I would take, sometimes I take guys out, like, one of the things I do is take men and women out into the real world to just practice, you know, interactions and stuff. And 
remember one guy going up and, you know, talking to a couple of girls over the course of the evening and, you know, like four girls and didn't necessarily go the way he wanted and talk to like the fifth one. And it did. And he got a phone number. And so his win ratio is what 20%. But he had to walk through four pain points to get there. Mm. Pain being relative, but four pain points. And I found that the men would rather not do that, that they would rather go home, send out 100 emails, get one response for a 1% response rate, but have to walk through zero pain points. Hmm. And to me, it was astounding the the lack uh, or the, the movement away from pain was so profound that they were happier with a much lower success rate as long as they didn't have to feel this pain. And then part of my job is to teach them that there is no pain. This is this is the reality that you are creating for it. Doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean that it's not tough to get over. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But it means that you have full control over how you want to feel about the situation. Mm. Uh, so getting people over that pain aspect of it, trying to get them to link it to the future pleasure of you know how I'm going to be in a relationship, I'm going to be married, family, have kids, whatever it is, to kind of get over that uncomfortableness at the beginning because growth is uncomfortable mm. and by definition. Um, so you know I. I make a couple of like metaphors to like working out like you in order to build anything you have to consciously make it difficult for yourself but the only way to do that for humans is to link it to something positive to link that like we work out it's it hurts it's painful but we do it because we link it to the future pleasure of how we're going to look how we're going to feel how we're going to be perceived how long we're going to live so we can do the same thing with this feeling of uncomfortability or pain of reaching out or going out or putting yourself, you know, going out by yourself or calling a friend to see if they want to go out. Because if you can get that mental link to the future pleasure of whatever your care is being in that relationship, it makes that current uncomfortability, you know, better. And you can start to rewire that brain. I'm feeling uncomfortable. Good. I'm pushing myself. I'm getting out there. Because hmm. um, that's it. You have, you have to, I mean, there's a bit of path law in it too, but it's a, you have to have control. The words that we use to create our own reality are very huge. When a man walks up and something doesn't go right, he says, I got rejected. No, you didn't. They don't know you. They don't know anything about you. In order to reject something, you got to know something compared to something else, you know, choose one, reject it. It's called a non-starter. You get rejected. Oh man, I totally failed. Did you learn something? Did you get better? Yeah. Then you didn't. You didn't fail. But these are the words we tell ourselves and they are large words. So they can create our own realities and that like, you know, nobody wants to see me and I'm just, you know, I'm bothering people if I reach out and that can be insidious because then, you know, it starts, you know, <laughs> that, you know, making you feel like I noticed that like what you talked about at the beginning too is one of the things that you were hoping for future research would be what is there a period of time where the individual stop responding to that unmeet need? You, right. you reach out, ask for friends for a year and. Everybody, you just, of course, it's a self-preservation thing. You can't keep feeling that pain. So you just remove yourself from the situation. I've been thinking a lot about this issue from a, you know, a point of view that I don't think we have a very poor grasp of is any behavior that people get engaged in, they can get upregulated or downregulated. So, you know, the phrase that humans can get used to anything. Um, I mean, if you think about, you know, starvation or war, if you think about, you know, times of abundance or times of when you have so much food around, you can eat whatever you want, which is kind of where we're at. Or many of us are now in the modern era. Um, what's weird is, is that you can get used to it. People can oh, yeah. get used to nearly anything. And I think what's interesting is, is I've been thinking a lot more about the idea of people getting used to being lonely. I, I, and I've been thinking about this a lot because what seems to be happening in our culture, broadly speaking, is that not just what you said before about there not being places where people can congregate for free uh, for just for the sake of congregation. And you mentioned elk clubs and rotary clubs and things like that. And I would even say that, you know, if you're living in New York City and I lived in Los Angeles for 10 years, there's nowhere you can go that doesn't cost you an arm and a no. leg. No, it's $20 there. walking out of your house fee. Right. It's so expensive to park your car, to drive it around, or to, you know, pay a valet or to get into a bar. I mean, it's real. And so if you think about what may be going on in part is we are all collectively getting downregulated to a lower and lower social state. And I think about this, although this isn't, um, you know, movies are not fact, but 
I think about any movie that's kind of created from the post-war World War period, and the presumption was you were entertaining. You know, mm-hmm. you're bringing people over, you're entertaining your boss, you're entertaining your neighbors, you're having a barbecue. Now, granted, again, that's not fact. But, you know, Robert Putman's uh, bowling alone would suggest that some of it was true, that people did spend a lot of time at VFW halls and rotary clubs and PTAs. And that all of that dedication of time that you had to spend socializing, you got used to it. And you didn't get just used to it in, the, in a grudging, like, oh, my God, I have to do this. Although there was certainly grumbling. You know, I don't think anybody... Oh, yeah. Do I have to go to Aunt May's thing today? <laughs> at any Thanksgiving, you know, this will come oh, back yeah. again, right? Oh, my God, I can't believe I have to do this. Or if you have to go out for, a, a, you know, even for a work obligation. I totally. got to go, I gotta perform. I got to go to work, you know? But what I'm getting at is that if you think about the idea that it's possible that we had a presumption for a very, very long time, where the presumption was that you were there. You, you showed up. You went to social events. You talked to people. And some people you liked, some people you didn't. You know, people hated small talk because that's what you did there. But occasionally you meet someone interesting. But by and large, what's interesting about that in the present research, what we know currently about research, is even that stuff mattered. Having that incidental contact with your neighbors matters. With ties, completely. Meeting somebody that new information matters. Meeting somebody to introduce you to, uh, to a friend or to a new romantic partner matters. You know, saying, hey, I know somebody who does that thing. You do. Let me let me introduce the two of you. And I, I think about how nice it is when I go out with my friends from high school who grew up here. I, I left California, or Kansas for a very long time and came back. And I, had, I was lucky to have friends who still lived in the area. And we don't, we talk about important stuff, but the conversation just flits to thing, to thing, to thing, to thing, to thing over the five huh? of us. There's mm-hmm. no real depth to most of it. It's just joking around, shooting the shit about what's going on. Yeah, what do you think my support group for the dad's group is? Talking right. about maybe like poop and beer. That, right, right, but right. But that is the but, but that's that's actually quite vital, and and I would argue it's vital not just because the content matters, although it may be important content because you got to make decisions about poop and beer. <laughs> but it matters because we are actually, and and from a communication point of view, and what I would argue is you are building the kind of relationship you're going to have with one another through the act of talking, through us communicating with one another. I am telling you what kind of relationship I want to have with you. And that relationship could be one where we shoot the shit and, you know, joke around. Mm -hmm. Or it could be one where if important things come up, we help each other out. Or it could be one where you're now my go-to if I need to know information about, you know, what to do about whatever, the subway or my lawn. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter because you're that person. But you build the type of relationship you're going to have with one another through this. But if we have all collectively abdicated our responsibility to showing up, if our attitude is that social events are expensive, costly, boring, stupid, uh, energy tax, energy, you know, what the, the no Wall Street return. Journal article talked about energy taxing or being exhausting. You know, if, if we have come to accept that all of these things are true, and I think there's also a counter discourse that's going on that complements this, which is kind of scary, in my view, is that this discourse is about toxicity and, and about, you know, how people are basically the root of our problems. That may be true. But the people are also the root of our solutions. Like we, we can't come to be in relation to one another if we also don't take the fact that people are also boring, stupid, say silly things, sometimes are impractical and, and all that kind of stuff. Because oh, you know I what? Say, if, if people have also, sense, if that no was job. true, then we would have no relationship with anybody, right? <laughs> if, if if we all got writ, wrote off because of that, mm-hmm. we'd be in trouble. So yeah. I think that there are two trends going on, or three. One is is that we are basically lowering and lowering and lowering our obligations to be out and to be with one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second is we're becoming a little more kind of annoyed or irritated with people who are just not perfect, not interesting enough, not conversant enough, not not a a good enough conversation. Disposable relationships, both in in, um, romantic and and otherwise. There's always someone else that you can... Right, right, because someone else may be better. Yep. And I think the third factor that's coming into all of this is a lack of a place. You know, I think your comment about third place is, is a very good one. But third places are not just um, about places to congregate for fun, like, uh, you know, which I, I think is awesome. But third places are also necessary to have you a reason to be, to be out. You need mm-hmm. a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And what I find is, is whether you're talking about dating or you're talking about friendship, one of the first things is figuring out what you're going to do with the person. Mm-hmm. And unless sitting down and having a long conversation is your cup of tea, and for some people it is. I don't mind sitting down and having a conversation with folks, but other people after, find after that... After a bit of a foundation, usually. Right, though. right. But a lot of people prefer to have something to do. Mm-hmm. So without something to do, you can't build that relationship. So I think... And these... then you have people like you, like in LA and New York, that just can't afford 
to be and they can't afford to have friends to date. And you know, you, know, you can't invite people to your house because they cannot afford it. <laughs> right? Where, where are you going to sit? I'll, you can sit on the bed, and I'll sit on the sink. You know, there's exactly. no space. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm very sensitive to the idea that there are social economic forces, there are structural forces, there are a lot of different things that are going on. I think what they're they are accumulating around something which I'm concerned about, which is that people are lonely because they are becoming gradually and systematically accustomed to it. They are getting accustomed to the feeling of being disconnected and they are distracting themselves to cope with it by mm -hmm. using social media, by, you know, going to the gold mine, which is streaming media that you mm -hmm. could endlessly consume without actually, um, you know, even getting off of it. I mean, it, it's, it's this continuous feed. Reddit, um, like I've got my own, you know. As long as you're there, they will be happy to have you. So I, I think that the thing is, is that those things are... Um, accumulating in such a way right now, and I've been very thoughtful and very wor and at the same time worried about the idea that what I write about in this article that we don't know a lot about how people downregulate to the point where they're so accustomed to being alone mm -hmm. that they stop taking action to make it better. Yep. that's scary. Well, and yeah, so you get the rise in Japan and other places of just the dying alone and true that no one knows for weeks at a time, and it's like. That's terrifying. It's and it's likely to be an endemic problem that we yep. and our you know Gen, Gen X, which is what I consider myself part yep. of, maybe one of the last generations of folks who saw a world in which the presumption was being out, and, this, and it's going away. And this is one thing that I, I I think about as well too. Kind of something to you is like I am teaching my children to be, uh, like social, to right. be, be extroverts, social. to be go talk to people, to go wave to people. Because that was a skill set that was valued. It, it still is a skill set that's very valuable. For now. But, for, but <laughs> that's scary. Yeah. But, well, and that's one thing I wonder is, is will that particular skill set of mm -hmm. in-person communication I don't think so. be less valuable because, in the future? Because it's not – I will say that it, I, there are plenty – I used to do a lot of research studies on people throughout – you know, these different populations, college students, adults sampled throughout the United States, older folks. I mean, I, I've, I've covered the terrain. Lots and lots and lots of people are doing fine. Like lots and lots and lots of people are social, have good friends, enjoy their families. You know, of course they struggle. They, you know, everyone struggles. But lots of people are in great shape. But there is a solid third of Americans right now who have loneliness that is, uh, you know, more or less happening often enough and are unpleasant enough that they're suffering. And more and young young adults, adolescents have higher rates of you know and kind of ongoing sad thoughts, mm -hmm. uh, not depression per se, but negative affect. Lowest and so this is happening. Sex, lowest rate of hooking right. up. Right. Well, also, actually, like... yeah, we're having a sex recession. I mean, yep. there are lots of these things that are happening all at once. But I I won't I don't worry that people like yourself who are trying to help the, your under your kids remember, if you will, the value of socially interacting are, are uh, teaching them skills that they won't need. I, I don't worry about that. What I worry about is that parents, particularly because I'm a parent of a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, can't quite sort out how to create environments in which their kids can practice it. Like, you can't be comfortable around people unless you are around people. Like, you, you, you can't swim unless you get in the swimming pool or in the, yep. in the ocean, right? Yep. So the point is, is that you got to do it to, to experience it. And I think that we're in this strange place, both in terms of our attitudes about parenting, but also our attitudes about social life, where we kind of don't want to do it. So we're not learning it. And then we're like, why haven't I learned it? And like, well, because I don't do it. Well, mm -hmm. I want to do that because that's unpleasant. And it just kind of creates that that same getting used to it phenomena, getting used to lonely. We're also getting used to not even bothering. And I was I was a part of it in your in the um in the study as well too. One thing that I found interesting is one of your uh, predictions was founded to be exactly the opposite in that those right. with, that felt more lonely were less likely to reach out and people that were less likely were more likely to reach out. And I'm wondering if it's that same thing, that impetus that we're just used to yep. doing whatever it is that we are already doing. Well, and, you know, when uh, the late John Cassiopo did all of his amazing studies on loneliness, you know, one of the things that's incredible is that loneliness shows up in your telomeres, loneliness shows up in your brain, loneliness shows up in your... Yep. Yep. All these different places, and it and it causes through probably an inflammation response, you know, mortality, morbidity. Dude, Loneliness I just does. the Fedor Gaskin at the longevity, the deep deep yeah. longevity process. It just yeah. like it if you uh, if the you Harvard take study, mental yeah. health, um, like and loneliness, it's worse for you than smoking. 
Like yep. it, will, it will age you faster than smoking. Yep. And, I know and... that that study as well, right? I mean, there's there are lots of really good reasons to think this is very, very insidious and dangerous to, to be lonely mm-hmm. chronically. Well, then you know, I, what, it, what what I what I think we don't understand as researchers, and this is what I was trying to get at, is I really don't understand. I think researchers don't understand very well how you get from kind of a nascent. I'm accustomed to getting disconnected to a full on. I am chronically lonely state, right? There's a pathway there because we all experience disconnection. So let me give you an example. You know, I was, when I was in college, I was very social. I had, a, I was in a fraternity. I was very involved in my church. Um, all had, all these things were very important to me. And I also loved college. College was awesome. Um, <laughs> Did you go, and you went to Kansas? I went to, no, I went to USC. Okay. I went to USC twice. Oh, undergrad. Okay. Then definitely was there. Mass- not a bad. Yeah. I'm, I went to the U. So again, you and I not horrible places to go to school. Yeah, that, I can't complain. Um, so when I went to master's degree, though, I went to North Carolina and I left all that. So I, I left uh, my friends, close close friends. I left this network of people at my different communities. I left the entire environment and I started over again. Now. When I was there, I felt really lonely. And I imagine anybody who has moved across the country for a job, anybody who has started a new job or um, broken up or moved to a new place has felt this way. Mm-hmm. Just really, it doesn't seem to get a whole lot better lonely. And I worked very hard to find space, to find how to use up my time. Like I looked for opportunities to use my time in ways to be able to make sure that I was prioritizing meeting new people, that I was following up when I wanted to see the people from my graduate program to see them in other places. I invited people to do stuff and I did a pretty good job, but I could have gone another way. I, I, I could have gone, this is unpleasant. I'm not going to do anything about it. Or yep. I'm going to go spend more time studying. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get better at this degree. I'm going to be an expert in this. Or I could have said, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pull within myself. And you know, this was before the days of streaming media. So I didn't even have a television. I had a computer, you know, but the point is, I could have taken a different path and eventually would have got to the point in which that that loneliness was part of who I became in the way that we have all these concerns about longevity and well-being. But the trick that I find, what I think researchers don't understand is how those two things go together. How does a person experience that longing, that loss, that really of that vibrant social connection to having a, a, a whatever life event that comes to pass that pulls you away from people and then they don't take action to help it out and they end up much lonelier than they started and i don't think we have a good answer to that you know we know we know that moving across the country leaving school starting a job getting married and having kids all predict losing friends some of those things are great things some of those things are you know okay things but the point is we know that losses cause people to feel disconnected what we don't understand very well as researchers is why it comes to pass that people become down-regulated to accept it. So I know I've gone on very long right there, but I think it's worthwhile to kind of think about that we are really struggling societally with a problem where a lot of people are becoming accustomed to a process that researchers themselves don't understand. And they don't understand very well, because as you said in this paper, I predicted people who were lonely were going to take action and do something about it. And they just didn't. Whether it was within a day or was at a really difficult time in their lives or during the pandemic, it wasn't clear that they were taking the actions they needed to take, take care of themselves. And that's doesn't work with the whole kind of process of a need that I started with, which is what I was talking about when you and I met, right? The process that when you have a need, like thirst, you drink, when you're hungry, you eat, when you're lonely, you should connect, but people don't. So it's worrisome, but I also feel like there is more attention being given to this than I've ever seen in my career. So I feel like there's a good chance that smart folks and people who care are going to get involved and try to think through how to make this better. I think we're having a pushback against digital culture that looks like an analog culture or face-to-face meeting, My, talking the, to humans. My matchmaking, dating, coaching career, I mean, everything stopped dead at the beginning of 2020 and then exploded. Because yeah. people are just so sick of the digital, not like, you know, human contact and full right. digital this and, you know, things like that too. Well, you touched on one thing that I just wanted to, the, I mean, I know we could spend an entire time talking about it. Sure. But, um, you know, this the research may be underestimating the importance of interpersonal media for those who need it being the most. Right. This brings me to incels. Because uh, this, you know, like you said, I feel like there's this dis- detachment um, from a lot of this this group of involuntary celibates that feel that the ch- in their in their verbiage the chads get all the guys they don't get anything so and they get picked on so I'm just going to completely remove myself from the entire situation 
Then I'm going to go to an echo chamber online, get radicalized, and kill someone, kill many well, people. You know, I think that, that... this this is it's just terrifying to me. This this lone lone wolf incel right now. Sure, that, sure. That is, you know, so I, I grew think up in your research. Like, it need there's actual physical, real world manifestations of this. I grew up in a 9-11 generation in the sense that I was very, it was very much aware of the events that happened around that. And I mm -hmm. remember at the time, one of the conversations was how do people become radicalized, right? How, <laughs> how does it come to pass that young people would be willing to commit suicide for a cause? And it was overwhelmingly people disconnected, people mm -hmm. who were lost. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they believed anymore. And here comes something along that says, usually young here, men, right? Usually young men. And here's what you do, right? Interestingly, I remember listening to the radio uh, during, you know, as QAnon was on the rise. And I thought to myself, holy, sh holy shit, this sounds a yep. lot like yep. the same thing. Disconnected people. Tate. Yeah, right. Disconnected people feeling as if that they are atomized. They have no connection in the world. They don't understand why things are happening the way they are. But it's not are their given fault. a narrative that, that promises them not just an answer, but also inclusion. If you wait, look at the way that those arguments are made, they're about mm -hmm. you being in the in group. Yeah, you are exactly. the ones in the know. Yep. You are the yep. ones who actually see what's because going on. Because we need that feeling of we belonging need that. That's so right. much. Right. That's why yep. cults exist. That's why right. love bombing works as a, as a you know. A, There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Dan absolutely. Savage said in a recent you know, mm -hmm. podcast that I really enjoyed where he's making a point that says that if we think about a lot of the what you're talking about in terms of incel as being actually a profound level of disconnection with the world, a, mm -hmm. a profound sense of disconnect. And when he he said in, you know, in the stories that he, when he would actually have conversations with people who self-identified that way, that he was astonished at how just deeply disconnected they were in their worlds. And this is in no way to excuse the behavior or even yeah. the rationalization of it. But what I'm trying to get at is the, the real world consequences, whether it be yeah. you know, the 9-11 generation, QAnon, or, or what you're talking about, all fit into a similar mold, which is I don't have anything, anyone in this world who makes my life meaningful and I need it. So I'm gonna and find- I'm searching and I'm offered. searching desperately right. for it. Yep. And if I don't find it in a positive way, I may find it in a negative way. You got it. <sighs> yeah. yeah, and unfortunately, and, you know, we, don't have, we don't have to end on a negative note. I tried to set you up for positive stuff. Oh, I said, no, I, I, said just... I said good things. You, you... Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an outro <laughs> you, here. Don't you took you it to the negative land. Oh, I, well, this, I know, I know, I didn't get to it yet. And there's always been a that's. I feel in a small, small sort of way that that's part of my job too. Is is just let's let people know what's going on out there, sure. so that we can put a name on it, so that we can talk about it, so that we can help bring everybody. <laughs> to a to a better place because i yeah. don't think that there's one incel or anything else that's happy where they are they'd rather mm -hmm. be somewhere they just don't necessarily know have the resources right. or, or the the language to go about it so yeah. that's fair so, so my my company is named hunt for advice so because i'm always you know looking looking for advice so and i know that we talked a lot about your research and stuff but at the end of the day like what's your advice for this what is your advice to to combat this um for the general public yeah i mean so the bottom line to me is a handful of things, and I recommend this. You know, I I got a lot of opportunity to talk about friendship in a paper that I wrote about how many hours it takes to be a friend, and you know I have you know, opportunities to talk about. Well, it depends which level. So I figured you know, close friend, be. it's over two hundred level, two hundred hours to make a close friend or a best friend. It's a long time. Um, so you got to keep going to those dads meetups, right? Uh, yep. The advice that I give is is roughly the same over and over again. Go to where people are over and over mm -hmm. again. That's my first piece of advice. So, you know, go there. Uh, this could be a club. This could be an organization you care about. This could be one that you founded yourself like you did. You can, this could be a church or a synagogue or a mosque. It could be anything. Go to a place where there are people are and keep going. That's my first piece of advice. You know, and I, as you said, behavioral change is hard, but you got to start somewhere. You got to get out. The second thing is, is that prioritize with the people you already know. If you're feeling, if you're far away from them geographically, make those phone calls, set up the time to talk. My best man at my wedding and I schedule a time to talk for, was it 15 minutes to 45 minutes once a month? We have to reschedule. We actually had to reschedule three times this time. Oh, still yeah. I, haven't on the calendar. I haven't seen one of my groomsmen probably in like 15 to 20 years and yeah. still chat. You know, that's, my... that's right. But if you don't, if you don't put it on a calendar, if you don't make it a priority, it's not going to happen. And the longer you go without, the more hard it is to get started. But once you get started again and you say, hey, before we get off the phone again, let's make another time to talk, you can build a, a pathway towards that. And the yeah. third thing that I would say is move up the, the ladder 
move up the ladder of modality. So at mm-hmm. the bottom rung, any kind of contact, texting or otherwise, is better than nothing. Yeah. No communication with nobody is no good, right? So texting is better than nothing. Then you got another layer up, which is probably somewhere in the realm of being, you know, uh, in uh, like a phone call, video chat, and then face-to-face. But at the very bottom of that is social media, which basically shows no difference than being alone in terms of your sense of connection to one and another. I think it's, again, that, that Jones's thing, you know, um, so, you're just comparing yourself to the best or a, it, a version of someone's best right. life. There, there, there's a lot of social help. comparison that doesn't make it easy. So my advice is though, move up the chain, right? Yeah. Push yourself. If you're okay at this level, push to a little higher level. Keep trying to make a priority of being social with one another. And then the last thing that I would say is follow through and don't be a flake. If you say you're going to go somewhere, go. If someone invites you to something, say yes. Show up. Don't make excuses. And if if you have to cancel, reschedule right away because it respects the other person's time for having put it on the calendar to begin with. And it shows that you're not rejecting them, which is critical because if a person says once I want to go out with you and then you turn them down or basically turn them down or Mm -hmm. don't show up, they're unlikely to do it a second time because they felt like you didn't really want to spend time with them. So follow through. Don't be a flake. So those are my four pieces of advice. All right. I like it. And, 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 you know, like we all have to push ourselves a little bit more than we used to because we, because like you said, we adapted to the, to the pandemic. We adapted mentally to it. We were oak. We had to become okay with Mm -hmm. no, or, or much less reduced human interaction in order to survive sanity. And so now we have to reverse that. And that Correct. can be hard to to get back out there again. So just make a phone call, uh, reach out to that extra friend, plan an event, go out by yourself and talk to some random people that you meet because they probably want to do the same thing. And, yeah. you know, we could all use a new friend. Right on. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to chatting again sometime. It's my pleasure. Be well. All right. Thank you for listening to Hunt for Relationship Science. If you like what you heard here and you'd like to learn more, please check out my articles and videos at huntforadvice.com. You can also follow me at Quest for Advice on Instagram, as well as find me on LinkedIn. And please follow all of our guests as well. You can find their information in the liner notes. I'm Hunt, signing off, changing the world one smile at a time.